0: Welcome back, everybody, to What Really Matters. I'm Tablet Deputy Editor Jeremy Stern with you in Los Angeles. I'm here, as always, with Walter Russell Mead, Tablet News writer, Global View columnist of The Wall Street Journal, and distinguished fellow at Hudson. You're calling in from the Swiss Alps today, Walter. What on earth could you possibly be doing there?
1: It's a World Economic Forum, and so I've been up here, you know, sort of plotting, uh, you know, trying to advance the cause of cosmopolitan globalism.
0: Right. Make us all eat insects instead of beef.
1: That, you know, that would just leave more beef for us. So, yes.
0: <laughs> All right, well, it's been quite a week, so let's get into this week's news. First story of the week. Voters in Taiwan went to the polls on Saturday, delivering a decisive victory to Vice President Lai Tingche of the pro-Western Democratic Progressive Party in what analysts are calling a firm rebuke of Beijing that is likely to increase tensions between the island and the mainland. Lai, who has championed Taiwanese independence in the past, triumphed with just over 40% of the vote in a rare three-way race. The candidate from the Kuomintang, which favors closer relations with mainland China, received 33%. The Wall Street Journal reports that Beijing is likely to increase its economic and political pressure on Taiwan in response to Lai's victory, including through stepping up gray zone warfare, maneuvers designed to harass Taiwan's military without openly initiating a war. Walter, is it news or faux news?
1: You know, I would say it's the victory was not as decisive as you were making it sound. Forty percent is it's a win in a three way race, but it's not a majority. And actually, the DPP ended up with um, fewer votes this time than it had the last time around. So uh, and also they lost control of the uh, legislature so that now, you know, the, the there's no party that has a majority in the legislature. So I would not say this was a triumph for the DPP. Although usually in Taiwan, it's very unusual in Taiwanese politics for somebody to win three in a row. So it is striking, but it's not it's not overwhelming. I'm sure that the Chinese are are less than pleased with what's happened. We'll have to see how they take it. I noticed that almost immediately afterwards, a, a one of the Pacific Island nations, Nauru, I believe. Um, shifted its recognition from Taiwan to, to Beijing. So they've certainly, you know, they've they've struck the first return blow.
0: There was another story in the journal this week about how something like $19 billion in defensive weapon systems that Taiwan's ordered from the US are backlogged by several years. At, at this stage at the beginning of twenty four, how seriously do you think the Chinese are taking America on the Taiwan question? Well,
1: I mean, you know, if they weren't taking us at least a little bit seriously, probably the Chinese would be in Taiwan at this moment. You know, but I do think there is uh, the Chinese do not feel that the United States is on an upsurge, either in terms of um, preparedness or will. But I you know, the, the fact that they're not making obvious preparations for an invasion or for major action, you know, we'll have to see what happens. But. I believe that they are still deterred from by their concerns about how the U.S. might react. But we are cutting into our margin, and that's not a wise thing to do.
0: All right, our second story, and it's the one the people tune in for. Donald Trump won the Iowa caucus Monday with the largest margin in history of the first Republican presidential nominating contest, cementing an early victory in his defiant bid to return to the White House. With 97% of the vote reported, the AP said Trump had 51%. He was followed by Ron DeSantis at about 21% and Nikki Haley at about 19%. Walter, it wasn't exactly breaking news, but I can't imagine it's total faux news either. What is it?
1: Well, I, you know, how many people think that Donald Trump isn't going to be the Republican nominee? I think the most interesting thing about the Iowa vote was that it it does seem as if he, um, he succeeded in broadening the base of his support in the Republican Party and that he carried a number of places that he didn't carry the last time he was he was in a primary there. So Trump is not getting weaker. That's clear. Uh, Neither Haley nor DeSantis has been able to to make an effective case to emerge as a rival. I think barring some act of nature or God, uh, Donald Trump is going to be the Republican nominee.
0: All right, final story of the week, or series of stories. So on Monday, Iran-backed Houthis struck a U.S.-owned cargo ship, the first direct assault on a commercial vessel since American and British forces launched multiple strikes against the Yemeni rebels last week. On Tuesday, Iran hit its neighbors Pakistan and Iraq and also Syria with ballistic missile strikes, including a target near a U.S. consulate in Iraqi Kurdistan. On Wednesday, the IDF chief of staff, Lieutenant General Ertel Levy, said this in a visit to troops in northern Israel, quote, I don't know when the war in the north will happen. I can tell you that the likelihood of it happening in the coming months is much higher than it was in the past, close quote. On Wednesday night, the U.S. targeted 14 Houthi missile sites in Yemen. And then on Thursday, Pakistan carried out a pre-dawn attack on suspected militant bases in Balochistan in Iran. Walter, holy crap, I hesitate to ask, but is it news or phone news?
1: It's news. But the news is that the slide toward regional war in the Middle East continues. Um, the, I would say the the biggest thing and the most worrying thing is that at this point, the Biden administration has not established deterrence. That is, it um, it seems unable so far to prevent the Iranians from gradually turning up the heat. The Iranians don't seem to be making any effort, whatever, to rein in the Houthis. Maybe the opposite. And Red Sea shipping in the Red Sea has essentially come to an end. Um, this this can't be allowed to continue. The Iranians are saying, "We'll end the war in Gaza, and then we will allow shipping again in the Red Sea." And for the U.S. to concede to that demand would be not even that. I think we could bring an end. The war in Gaza by an act of will, but um, that would be to basically say that Iran owns the Middle East. Um, that would be, I think, not a good idea. So we are we are in a position now where the Iranians are continuing to test and raise the stakes, and the um, Americans have not yet earned the respect of the Iranians that they are taking us particularly seriously. I'm told that we um, actually warned the Iranians, you know, sort of notified them that we would be striking the Houthis. This doesn't seem wise. Uh, It's almost like we were saying, look, we'll just do a little bit. Please don't overreact. We don't mean very much by it. That's not actually how you establish deterrence. That's actually how you create an impression in the mind of your opponent that you are deterred and that they are succeeding in intimidating you. Uh, We are, I'm afraid, American policy, even though it's clear the Biden administration wants nothing less, I mean, really does not want a war in the Middle East, absolutely doesn't want it. And they're right not to want it. But unfortunately, the net result of their policies is making it more likely, not less.
0: One follow-up there on on what you just said. I mean, what is this story about the Biden administration redesignating the Houthis as a terrorist group on Wednesday? So from what I understand, the Houthis had been designated as a foreign terrorist organization, which is a a legal term for the state and treasury departments, until 2021 when the administration removed the designation. And now we've relisted the Houthis not as an FTO, but as a, quote, specially designated global terrorist, which is a legal term distinct from an FTO and apparently allows more room for carve outs. I mean, what do you think is going on there? Is this part of the administration's effort to avoid a war?
1: I think it is in their um, convoluted thinking. Um, I really am, you know, the problem in some ways is that it's been the view of the democratic foreign policy universe since the Obama administration. Uh, that the the, the best way to avoid war in the Middle East and to safeguard American interests is to reach some kind of understanding with Iran. And they tell themselves that the Iran nuclear deal, the JCPOA, was a brilliant success. And if the evil Trump chimpanzee hadn't come in and wrecked this beautifully functioning program, we would now be well on the way to that detente. And so ever since the Biden administration has come in, the hope has been that somehow we could get back to that, what they believe, I think falsely, was a good place. you know. And, and so everything they've done has been with that objective in mind. They are not taking no for an answer. I think at some point you have to. So even now they are thinking about Uh, I think uh, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan here in Davos said in his uh, talk that the goal needs to be uh, what we now need to think about is managing escalation. This is not, I think, how you reach an understanding with the mullahs in Iran.
0: All right, that does it for the news this week. Let's have the big conversation. You've been chumming it up in Davos at the annual World Economic Forum in the Swiss Alps this week, Walter, and it's clear from the two journal columns you've written that you are not yourself, Davos man, you're merely there to observe him in his natural environment. But it made me think of a Via Media piece or series of pieces you wrote several years ago in the early Obama era, long before the Trump phenomenon began, on the kind of treason of the elites. You talked about the ways in which American elites had started to see themselves more as citizens of the world rather than citizens of the United States and had become kind of intoxicated by globalization unmoored from the national interest. And also the ways in which American elites had started to kind of maybe trivialize or diminish their sense of duty or a sense that their privilege is tied to duty to the rest of the country. There's been a populist backlash in the US and across Europe since you wrote those essays, maybe 12 or 15 years ago. And I'm curious whether in Davos this week you see an elite chastened by this development or has it made them kind of even more defensive and paranoid and desperate to protect their position?
1: Well, you know, you can be paranoid and desperate at the same time. You know, here's, here's the thing. First of all, there's actually nothing bad with thinking of yourself as in some sense a citizen of the world. We are all human beings. There are things, this, this is the only planet we've got. And until Elon Musk gets us to Mars, it's the only one we've got. And I think even after he gets us to Mars, it'll be the only one we've got that's worth having. And it needs, you know, we need to live together. There are all these nuclear weapons. There are, you know, it's, we actually do have to cooperate. And so the, the sense that there's, you know, the tribe and loyalty to the tribe is everything and that the global thing is empty you know, this is wrong. When I think about this, you know, um, we have this new nationalism that I think goes too far in the other direction and says, you know, the nation state is the heart of everything and is the, is the highest value. I think about, for example, the story of Abraham in the Bible. You know, Abraham is the father of the Jewish nation. Christians see him as kind of the spiritual father of Of the Christian world, Muslims look back to him as well. But but Abraham, the thing that brought Abraham close to God was not inward looking exclusivity. It was his hospitality to angels and to strangers who turned out to be angels um, and messengers of God in various ways. And it was, you know, the thing that destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah was inhospitality. Uh, to strangers. And so, so you can be a member of a tribe and you can also feel that you have a real, you have universal obligations as a human being. Right. And I think that's true for all of us. I think it's true always and everywhere. Figuring out the right balance is, is the hard thing. You have people who are ultra nationalists who think that, you know, um, what is it? There's some Belgian, or it's a Latin phrase. I saw it on a statue in Belgium that sort of the good of the state, the good of the people is the supreme good, supreme law. And then on the other hand, you can have, you know, there are no nations. We live in John Lennon's world. There are no borders. Both of those things get you in trouble. And I do think that after the fall of the Soviet Union, a lot of the intellectual classes and business classes in the United States Uh, went too far in the direction of repressing their sense of themselves as Americans trying to help America uh, and sort of vaulted into this kind of universal cosmopolitanism. I, I am not a citizen of the United States. I'm a citizen of the world. I would say I am a citizen of the United States, and that's one of the ways that I serve as a citizen of the world, that your loyalties begin with your own nation, your own people, and they go forward from that. And that in trying to help make the world a better place, yes, you know, I'll, you know, try to help women's education in Nigeria. I'll, you know, want trade practices that help India. To, you know, there are all kinds of things I might want to do. But the first and most important thing I can do as a citizen of the world is to help my country flourish. So there's no contradiction between these and to feel that there's a contradiction either on the ultra nationalist side or on the ultra globalist side is to get it wrong. And what I wrote in those essays was based on my sense that the American elite had gotten that wrong. And I think to some degree that is still true and i think that the the this sort of populist reaction which does sometimes not always but sometimes take the form of this excessively chauvinistic nationalism exclusivistic nationalism is a reaction to this failure of the elites you know uh two wrongs don't make a right the the, the what we all need to be doing is trying to strike the proper balance even if other people aren't
0: All right, and final question, you mentioned that Jake Sullivan's been there, Secretary Blinken as well, maybe doing a bit of damage control at Davos this week. What's the reception been like to their efforts from what you hear? Well, again,
1: I can't speak for everyone, but the conversation at Davos this year, insofar as as I've heard it, is gloom about geopolitical developments, a feeling that the world has stopped becoming more united, that it is fragmenting, that we are seeing um, geopolitical competition rising. The business people here are talking about how it's getting harder for them to operate. The global environment is is not working in the way it is. And also the sense that some of the problems that Davos is known for caring a lot about, like climate change, it's not so easy to argue that things are moving in the right direction on that. So it's very, so since the United States is of all the countries in the world, the one that plays the largest role in, in trying to sort of achieve geopolitical stability, prevent war, all these, it's very hard when everyone thinks things are getting worse to come out there and say, hi, my administration is really doing everything right. And everything is under control, baby. We've got it. Don't worry. OK, that that is just so dissonant from the experience of the people, say, the lived experience of the Davoisi. It, it's hard for the spokesman of American administration to be convincing at a moment like this. As we're sort of waiting to see, OK, which country in the Middle East has launched rockets against which other country today? And very few people would have guessed it would be Pakistan attacking Iran. But this is not this is not the sign of a great power solidifying the stability of the geopolitical order.
0: All right, that does it for the big conversation. Let's end on the tip of the week. I'm sure Davos is only the first of many conferences you'll attend this year, Walter. I've only attended a fraction of the conferences you have, but I almost always end up like eating too much of the food and then I get sleepy and my mind wanders during the panels and the speeches and I end up leaving to go explore the surrounding area. And you know, maybe you do some networking and have some very interesting sidebar conversations, but those are always kind of worse than they are in other settings. So besides not being a speaking attraction unto myself like you, I know I'm also probably just doing these conferences wrong. And a lot of other people who attend conferences in whatever industry they're in might feel the same way. So as a longtime veteran of conferences, tell us, how do you think about these? What's the best way to do them?
1: Yeah, well, definitely, Jeremy, slackers like you aren't going to get invited back. That's clear. You wonder why no one invites you to conferences. When when you go, you don't go to the panels, you fall asleep. <laughs> you, you know, you like sneak out to whatever dives you're you're thinking of in the city, right? Okay. We got it, Jeremy. First of all, you shouldn't go to a conference you don't have a good reason to attend. If there's nothing there that interests you, and it can be the subject of the conference and it can be the people at the conference, in a place like the World Economic Forum. Uh, not all of the panels are interesting. Some of them are extremely interesting. Some of them, you know, I would really pay money not to attend. But you can. There are enough things here that you can you can skip. There's a smorgasbord. But here, actually, the people that you see are very interesting. They're people that maybe you've known before and in other places or people you've always always been interested in and suddenly you're sitting next to Tony Blair at a you know on a couch and you turn and you say hello. I guess the, the step one is go to good conferences. Decline invitations to conferences that don't interest you. And if you're going to a good conference, you'll have a purpose. Keep your purpose in mind. Uh, Don't just sort of passively go look for, okay, who is going to this conference that I really want to see? What is being discussed at this conference that I really want to hear? Uh, When do I want to spend my time listening to what people are talking about? And when is the right time to be out there in in the lounge talking to others? It's usually a good thing to have some people that you already know who are going to be there. So you can sort of compare notes and, uh, you know, they're going to some little dinner or some little gatherings. They will come along with us. So you've got to you've got to invest in it. I am not a champion conference goer. I don't play Davos to win. I play it best to show. But over the years, I have learned a great deal from being here. And obviously, when you're, a you know, I have this little job of being a global view columnist for an American newspaper. You know, where else am I going to be able to talk to to people from all over the world? So many countries, you know, even sort of riding in the van to and from the hotels, you'll find out, well, this person here is actually like been heavily involved in, in conservation in the Philippines, which means that. You may not be interested. That may not be what my column is about, is conservation in the Philippines. But she has been coming up dealing with the Filipino government and politics on the ground in all kinds of convoluted ways, land interests, uh, housing developers, um, indigenous groups. And so you you start getting a picture of, of a society. And then so next time I go to the Philippines, maybe I'll see her. But I'll what I'll have in my mind is this much more textured understanding of how that place works. So you've got to be open to learning things at a conference that, that you didn't know you needed to know when you went. But still, don't go to conferences where the topic doesn't interest you and you think the other people there are dull. That's just a big mistake.
0: All right. There you have it. Thanks to our producer, Noam Bloom. Thanks to Will Cummings at Hudson and my co-host, Walter Russell Mead. I'm Jeremy Stern. We'll see you next week. And until then, please consider rating the podcast and leaving a review.